the sheriff knew exactly what was going on. In fact, after the indictments went went down and I he called me to his office and I said, didn't you see Mississippi burning? You're not bigger than the federal government. You know, we cannot intimidate the federal government. What was your end game? What were you thinking? You know, and he just kind of looked at me and, and did. I don't think he really grasped the magnitude of what was going on because he said, hey, you know what? Indictment doesn't mean conviction. My name is Liz and you're live in the Black Seat where Black people are sharing our experiences and our true selves in a space that is diverse, free, and unfiltered. Everyone is welcome in the Black Seat, but make no mistake, Black folks are driving. If you're ready to challenge your ideas about Black people or learn something new, we are here for the genuine seekers. But if you're ready, buckle up, let's go. Those who know me know that I have very, shall we say, specific viewpoints on law enforcement in the Black community and have been itching to have this discussion in the Black seat. So when my friend Gary, who you met on the addiction episode in season two, told me about a forum with an L.A. sheriff's candidate, I was thrilled to meet Chief Cecil Rambo. He has an incredible origin story and a colorful career, including his current position as the chief of the Los Angeles Airport Police and as a witness testifying in a high-profile trial of former Sheriff Leroy Baca. We talk about the possibilities of police reform, my stance as an abolitionist, and why in the world he wants to be the sheriff of L.A. County. So if you're ready, buckle up, let's go. All right, so I'm excited about this conversation today. We're going to jump right in. So if you could introduce yourself, your name, your age, your profession, where you live, and how you identify ethnic. Well, my age too, huh? Wow. Okay. I was like, you know, I, I always put that in there just so people have a gauge of like generationally. Yeah, yeah. But it's up yeah. to you. No, it does put things into context. So my name is Cecil Rambo. I am 63. So I was born in 59 and grew up in the 60s and 70s. So I did have, you know, big Afro back in the day and all that. Grew up in South Central in Compton. I was actually adopted from an orphanage and uh, my parents were in Compton. We moved to South Central shortly before the, the Watts riots, uh, and I went to Washington High in South LA, Henry Clay Junior High School, and I uh, graduated from Humboldt State with a degree in sociology. I had no idea why everybody was majoring in botany in the 70s, but now I know. Right. <laughs> I currently am the chief of police at LAX in Van Nuys Airports, which is the largest aviation police department in the nation. But I have over 45 years of public service because I spent 33 in the sheriff's department. And then I was a city manager in Compton and uh, running a whole municipality of about 100,000 people. And then I was the assistant city manager in Carson uh, and also interim city manager there. So I've been, I've been around and done a few things. No, just a few things. Just a few things. I currently live in the South Bay now. Okay. So. And how do you identify ethnically? Black. My adopted parents are Black. My I met my real father on Ancestry. He, he just passed, though, actually, last year from COVID. But, uh, you know, he was African-American. And, you know, my mom was Korean, but I look exactly like my father, which is pretty crazy. He had crazy genetics. <laughs> Fit for a TV movie. <laughs> exactly. This is, this is good. So we talked already about kind of your origin story, but I think there are some interesting things about your background that would have made it you know, a little unlikely that you would get into law enforcement. So can you go in, into your background a little bit? Without oversharing and dirty and, you know, putting out too much dirty laundry about my family and stuff. So, you know, my parents, my father was, uh, he had an eighth grade education. They were from Texas. He was a janitor. 
My mother was a seamstress and she had a high school diploma. So, you know, my father had, you know, some substance abuse issues. Um, and I think, I don't know if he had mental health issues as a result of the substance abuse or if one came with the other, because my grandmother on my father's side had some mental health issues. Growing up with, with him uh, wasn't always, he had to walk on eggshells and, and he was in and out of jail. And I saw him fight LAPD in our house and you know, he would kick us out the house at gunpoint, all kind of stuff. I mean, the first person I actually pulled a gun on was this guy, you know, as he was, you know, abusing my mom. So I really thought I wasn't even going to get in law enforcement because I'm a junior. So when they did a background check, they were like, this isn't you, right? You know, uh, so, yeah, it was really unlikely. I think a, a lot of the reason I leaned towards uh, even sociology uh, as a degree was trying to understand, you know, human dynamic and, you know, how people is it environment that shapes the person or, or what, you know, because my uncles and my aunt on his side of the family were very educated people. They had, my aunt had a master's degree back in the thirties. He was a Delta and, you know, my uncle, uh, his other brother was a professional jazz musician. And my other uncle was a professor at Cal Poly Pomona. And, and here was my dad who was, you know, that guy. So it's kind of like the black sheep of family. So you have a really interesting life story where um, you could have gone really either way, right? So what was it that actually got you into law enforcement? You know what? It was it was luck. I started out working for the county uh, literally as a kid right out of high school uh, being a lifeguard. And, uh, you know, you'd see the deputies there. And, you know, I, I had no thoughts of even joining law enforcement. I was up at Humboldt and I was in my third year. And one of my uh, uh, classmates that was senior to and he had come down to Los Angeles for summer break and he goes, hey, I can't get a job in forestry, you know, uh, but LAPD is hiring and, you know, the sheriffs are hiring. And so I thought, uh, you know, now when you're a young black kid from South Central, you don't have any idea how to get in law enforcement. You don't know what that's like. You know, you know, you're not generational in law enforcement like many of the other cultures are. So when I came back, you know, and this is a very interesting story. So I came down in my third year of college to take the exam. And on my way down, because uh, it's a 700-mile drive one way, my transmission went out in Camarillo. So I had to drive from Camarillo to Los Angeles in fourth gear. So I get to L.A. I borrow my girlfriend, then-girlfriend's car to go to the interviews, the oral interview. And I'll never forget this. I'm driving north on Western at where the Wilton Theater is. I go to put the brakes on, and the brakes go out on her car. Mm. I literally have to pull the emergency brake, swerve into a parking structure, parked the car and ran six blocks to the oral interviews. And of course, needless to say, I didn't pass, right? So I was all dejected, went back. As fate would have it, I finished my degree, right? Had I got the job, I might have I might have dropped out of college or whatever. But I went back kind of heartbroken, dejected, and uh, it was a blessing in disguise. So uh, I just really just came back and I just fell into law enforcement because I applied for LAPD, the sheriff, and colonial life insurance. So <laughs> one of those things is not like the other. Yeah, I should have applied for the fire department too, because I was a lifeguard, but I just didn't think about it. Right, right. Well, like you said, there it's not generational, right? you know, where you are. And um, had you had, even though you hadn't had any um, exposure as a profession, did you have run-ins with law enforcement when you were younger? Didn't we all? I mean, you know, so I remember one night, I was coming home from a, a movie theater with my buddies and, and it wasn't even that late. It was like 10 o'clock. And I saw LAPD down there around 94th and Western. And it looked like they were doing something. So I'm, I go to my house and I'm parking and I hear the tapping of some metal on the window. I look and these dudes got their guns out at me. I'm like, oh crap, what's going on? So they pulled me out of the car. 
handcuffed me. I go, look, I live like right there. I live right there, you know, and uh, you're literally on my front lawn. And uh, they were looking for somebody who was, I guess, a burglar or something like that. And so, you know, they let me go after about 20 minutes. But, you know, so those kinds of things, you know, have happened to us and, you know, in the community. So I don't know if I was necessarily profiled because there was the only car out there at that time of night, but because I was wearing a beanie and, you know, all that kind of, you know, I was probably his profile. And, and the reason I ask is because I know lots of other, as, as most Black people do, lots of other Black men and women who are in law enforcement. And when you kind of look at the over-policing or propensity for Black people to be targeted by the police, the idea of then going into that profession is fascinating to me because it's almost like you would pick someone who maybe abused you or victimized you. And would you have to do this to someone else? So I'm always interested in the origin story of people who get into law enforcement from our community. I just want to add that, that it wasn't, I didn't have that many negative run-ins with law enforcement, but I had a lot of negative run-ins with, because remember in the seventies, gangs are starting to proliferate. So, you know, I've been robbed at gunpoint in the locker room, people taking your Levi jacket, people trying to sell guns in homeroom. In 1972, there was literally a thousand student riot at Henry Clay Junior High School. And it wasn't over Crips and Bloods because I was just starting. It was over who had homeroom in the bungalows versus the hallway. That's how crazy that things were starting to get back then. And so you had this going from 11th grade to 12th grade. One of my gymnasts, I was a gymnast and one of my teammates got killed that summer. It was all these things that were happening in our community that made me kind of lean towards a sociology thing. There was drug stuff. My dad was using drugs. And so I was really, sound crazy, I'm a Pisces, so I feel everybody's pain, right? So I'm, <laughs> I'm like, uh, you know, maybe I can help in some kind of way. I mean, all of those things are fantastic additional context. So you've been in law, you were a sheriff for how many years? At, like with 33 years. So you've had a lot of experience just as a man living in Los Angeles as a citizen, but also in law enforcement. So why do you think law enforcement and the Black community remain at odds? So why do you think that tension still exists? It's police culture, generally speaking. Uh, and I can tell you that, you know, having worked, uh, you know, back in the rock cocaine days and the, the real, the gang wars and that in the 80s and the 90s, you know, there was this whole atmosphere of, of violence in the community that even if you look back at you know, Clinton and, and all the folks that are uh, that brought in three strikes. I mean, everybody was really at their wits end in terms of crime at that time, kind of like now. I, that's why I hope the pendulum doesn't swing back. So everybody was up in arms about crime. And, and so the cops were kind of like tasked with being that thin blue line between gangs running over their neighborhoods and drugs being, you know, sold openly in the streets and, you know, these other communities. And so that culture kind of prevailed where people that when you come into the organization, you're trained a certain way, there's a certain culture within law enforcement. And so it kind of perpetuated itself over the years. And every time we have a spike in crime, you know, you get this kind of mentality where communities actually want you to be aggressive cops, you know what I mean? So I think it's partly police culture and it's also partly community outcry and support, even though they may not openly support it, you know, just kind of like you're hearing now, we want to recall George Gascon, we want, you know, we want these criminals in jail. Okay, it sends a kind of an interesting message. Yeah, there does seem to be some uh, conflict. I mean, in any community is not monolithic. Right. Right. I know, I know that there's a lot of people who watch TV and see what the media puts across in terms of 
what a criminal looks like. And I'd be willing to bet if you were to talk to mostly anyone and say, I want you to envision a criminal in your head and tell me what race that person is, they're going to most likely say black or brown, even though brown isn't a race, but what, what skin color that person has. And so there are people in the community who have been seated and kind of influenced to look at their own people in that way and then want that kind of policing. And then there are people like, like me. And I kind of, am, as I learn more, I am leaning into abolition. So what would you say to me and other Black folks who are in my shoes as to why we should trust and still make a place for law enforcement? Well, because as long as there are lawmakers making laws, you're going to have to have somebody to enforce them. You know, what I get from most people in the community, particularly the really um, like high crime areas with Compton, Watts and those areas, like we don't not want police. We just want to be treated fairly. We want things to be we want to be treated like the same people, the same way people are treated in Venice or these other areas. Abolition of law enforcement, I think, is not something that is grounded in reality in terms of human nature, quite frankly, because people left to their own devices. If you, you know, if you believe in the Bible, God said, don't do this. And Adam and Eve did it anyway. So there's going to be people that do things that uh, have to have consequences, especially violent things that, you know, really shock people's conscience. So you really have to have somebody that enforces that. And it's not just law enforcement. The law enforcement is just the tip of the spear of it. We just bring the person to custody so that it can be tried, whether they're innocent or guilty or whatever the issue is. The whole system itself, I mean, when you talk about abolition, then you also have to talk about abolition of actually the system itself. Do we incarcerate people for for committing crimes? And if we do, what crimes do we you know, incarcerate them for? Is it only violent crimes? You know, So you have to really Think about what abolition really means in terms of the full definition of, of, you know, societal norms. Right. And I think that that's a conversation. Like if you actually sit down and look at the data, there's a lot of people who are locked up right now because they couldn't make bail for something petty or for marijuana offenses. So I think there's a conversation if I were the kind of person who would want to come halfway. And I feel like we do have to have some kind of compromise in these kinds of discussions to actually sit down and deal from a place of reality of who's locked up right now versus, you know, who we say we're locking up and who we say society needs to be protected from. This is an area that I'm exploring. Like I said, I'm leaning towards abolition. Sometimes folks do things and I'm like, put them under the jail. But I, I feel like it's kind of a broad brush that especially impacts Black people. When we're talking about not only the tension in the community with law enforcement and people, there is tension within law enforcement. One really interesting thing about your story is that you testified against Lee Baca. And I know that there's some people who who listen really around the world, and I'm grateful for y'all around the world, but they may not be familiar with Sheriff Lee Baca and everything that happened here in California. So if you could kind of go into what the issue was with him, how he ended up on trial, and why you felt like it was important for you to testify against him. Yeah, so just, uh, I don't want to draw it out too long, but the, the nutshell is the ACLU and the FBI have been looking at jail violence from like 2008 to about 2010. What they did is they created, they started a uh, what's called a civil rights violation investigation. They had an investigator give an inmate who was facing 400 years of time a cell phone. 
And so you can't have cell phones inside custody. It's a misdemeanor. But his job was to gather information and data and, and send it to this FBI agent. So she, he was acting as her informant. So, you know, we do jail searches all the time for phones, contraband, blah, blah, blah. So they discover the phone on this guy. When our investigators are looking at the phone, they discover, oh, this phone is an FBI agent's phone. I mean, are we being investigated kind of thing, right? So the sheriff in his infinite wisdom apparently decided that he was going to find out what was on the phone. They were going to take the inmate and try to question him and find out what was going on. Later on, we discovered that they actually went to intimidate and try to arrest the FBI agent for having planting the phone in the jail, tried to get her actually uh, arrested by the by court order. And basically, they interfered with a civil rights, federal civil rights investigation. I was the commanding officer in charge of custody. So when that started happening, I, I went to the sheriff and said, you know, look, sheriff, I've worked internal affairs three times. They're investigating us. They're not going to give us and cooperate with us. I don't know what you're thinking, but whatever it is you're thinking, let's cooperate with them and do not hide this inmate and do not you know, try to threaten that FBI agent. So at that point, there was also an election going on. So I got summarily walled off, thank God, actually walled off from anything they were doing. And, and uh, at the time, there was only two of us, two assistant sheriffs for the department. The department is very large, it's 18,000 people. So I was in charge of 8,000 people. One of the things that they realized is that the span of control was too big for as the department pyramided up. So they created two more assistant sheriffs. And so I got what's called countywide services, SWAT, Aero Bureau, you know, the bigger countywide things. Uh, and then we hired a specific person just for custody. And that was Terry McDonald. We got her from the state. She was a CDCR corrections specialist. They end up doing what they did. You know, we get yanked into the, to the court and I'm, I'm a witness. I'm like, yeah. I mean, I told them that you're out of your mind. Don't if I'm quoted in the paper by saying don't F with the feds. Because I worked undercover with the FBI years ago as a, a narcotic agent. So I testified against them. It was important for me because of the integrity of the organization. At, at that point in time, there was the sheriff and then there was me in terms of like who was left in the organization because the under sheriff had been retired and removed. And I was the most senior executive in the department at the time. And my partner, for a very brief moment, the other partner I had, he literally just got up one day and walked away. And for about a month, I was in charge of 18,000 people. Somebody had to maintain the, the morale that, and had to do the day-to-day -day running of the department. Mm -hmm. That's kind of that story in a nutshell. And, and you can Google it and look it up. Uh, it's, on, it's readily available on the web. I mean, I can imagine that there would have to be some trepidation or hesitance or... You know, the trepidation wasn't what you might think. I mean, the bottom line is... Leadership is important. Integrity is important, particularly in our business. We're in the trust-based business. And for the sheriff to direct his staff, I mean, 11 staff members went to jail behind this. And so it's kind of like, can, no one can tell you, can order you to do anything illegal. They didn't have to follow those orders. And for him to blame everyone else for what happened was a travesty. Uh, so it was important for me to let people know that, no, this wasn't just the undersheriff and these people running rogue. The sheriff knew exactly what was going on. In fact, after the indictments went, went down and I, he called me to his office and I said, didn't you see Mississippi burning? You're not bigger than the federal government. You, you know, we cannot intimidate the federal government. What was your end game? What were you thinking? You know, and he just kind of looked at me and, and did, I don't think he really grasped the magnitude of what was going on because he said, hey, you know what? Indictment doesn't mean conviction. And I was like, are you hearing the words that are coming out of your mouth? It was really unfortunate. It was really unfortunate period of time because he's really a smart guy. 
And I like some of the philosophies that he did, you know, he just lost his way. And I think a lot of that had to do with protecting. It's kind of like the current sheriff. He's protecting himself from damage politically so he can remain in office. And it's really jeopardized, you know, his values, his morals, the integrity of the organization, as well as the integrity and the values that that you want to demonstrate to those deputies there. I mean, I can't even imagine, especially with that many people who are sheriffs and then just law enforcement more broadly, the impact that something like this has on morale, on the way that people operate or think that they can get away with something or then realize maybe I can't. Like I just imagine the ripple effects of it. And we know that there are other things happening besides what happened with Leroy Baca in the sheriff's department, the gangs, and like you said, the the police culture. So here's the, the bigger question. Do you think that policing with all of this stuff going on can actually be reformed? What does reform even mean in your world? I think it can, but it's not going to be easy. You know, there's the whole concept. I mean, some of the candidates running, quite frankly, they know a little, but they don't know enough to realize that they don't know what they should know. And so they overestimate their ability to really make these changes. I've been around a long time and having, I'm a sociologist and, you know, master's in leadership. The point is, yes, I think it can happen. However, it's going to be a heavy lift in terms of maybe bringing in like the federal government, FBI to uh, manage the organization. Because I can tell you that the, the police unions are very insular about this. They're very protective of these cultures, management, you know, staff. And, you know, everybody goes, well, you're high ranking or anybody who's high ranking. Why didn't you guys do anything? Well, we did what we could. But the bottom line is there's a whole system that, that kind of supports this. One, it starts with the sheriff. If the sheriff does not want to do an investigation or the sheriff keeps promoting people up that are inked or whatever, they're sending a subliminal message, no matter what an underling does. Then when the lawsuits happen, the county council goes and has to circle the wagons and does settlements, and then they have to defend the deputy, which is kind of counterintuitive to what's going on. So it's a real systematic problem that really has to be dealt with on a a much larger scale. So it can happen, and it begins with how you recruit folks, uh, who you use to recruit people, who you use to train people, what you train them what you reward them for, what you discipline them for, and just what you will tolerate. I mean, and that's the bottom line. And then I won't promote people that uh, unless you, so for instance, we don't, we don't just arrest a crip because they're a crip, right? They have to, there's a behavior aspect of it. So just because this person is a a grim reaper out of South LA and they're on the promotion exam, maybe they, they're, they're just a reaper for whatever reason. And you want to denounce that. Okay. If you want to denounce that and get off the gang injunction or whatever we do, great. But the point is, my goal is to not reward people for these stupid behavior. You know, mm-hmm. there was an article recently where I just read it the other day where uh, in 2015, one of the deputies tried to shoot off the tattoo of another deputy. You know, Google it. It's insanity. I mean, you know, what have we come to? What are you talking about? Right. So when you have behaviors like that, where people are willing to go to those links due to alcohol, whatever, ignorance, you know, behavior, uh, it's, it's just what you what you tolerate that will make a change. And it, it takes time because you're going to have, you know, attrition and things like that. But I can tell you at the airport, for example, we had a, and I'm not going to name anybody, but we had a, you know, there's certain clubs, motorcycle clubs, and there's some black motorcycle clubs and et cetera, et cetera. And one of our members was a member of one of those clubs and he was posting and stuff. Well, that's conduct that's unbecoming and, and really detrimental to the integrity of our organization. So we got fired. 
he didn't even do anything other than, you know, we didn't say he committed criminal acts or any of that. But if you say you're a part of a motorcycle gang or club and you fly in colors and you're posting this stuff, you can't be a cop, too. And I think that's what's so the, the when you feel the hypocrisy, it's like you are in your professional role at your place of employment in a gang and yet you're out on the streets possibly throwing people in jail who are also in a gang. Right. It feels hypocritical. It doesn't feel hypocritical. It is hypocritical. I mean, the bottom line is we, you know, the public trusts us to, if I have to arrest you, then you don't want me planting drugs on you. You don't want me make falsifying my report. You don't want me saying anything other than what happened. That's where the trust aspect comes in. Or if you witness a crime, I don't want to go to this guy because I can't trust him. You know, I know he's part of this group or whatever. Uh, or they did my cousin dirty, you know, that kind of thing. So public trust is really cornerstone in how we actually can get crime solved, how we can lower crime, how we can interact with the public and work with our youth. It, I mean, it's really just foundational. Uh, yeah, 100%. And I think that's why it is daunting, because that seems like that would have been, you know, protect and serve and that that would be the mantra that or has been the mantra or motto for a long time. But we haven't actually seen that consistently in our community. So it feels like, will it ever happen? Can reform ever happen? But how does this inform your campaign? Like what you would push for if you were to be elected? The bottom line is it starts with a whole host of things, tightening up the current policy. Just like with sexual harassment, mandated reporting, if somebody does something to you or tries to recruit you, making sure that you're protected when you do whistleblow or you tell uh, anti-retaliation policy. And then making sure that we, uh, even if you're a supervisor, you have, if you hear about something like that, you need to report it so we can take a look at it and start investigating it. Reporting back and working with the inspector general's office and then going to the the civilian advisory committee or oversight committee and talking openly about, hey, this is what's going on. This is what we're trying to find out. This is what we're working with the inspector general's office on, those kinds of things. Uh, and then again, it's it's the recruitment, making sure that we're looking at people's social media and making sure we're not hiring proud boys and extremists. And then who we select to train them, who we select to promote, who, you know, those kinds of things. It's all it's it's multifaceted. And, uh, you know, again, that's why I say it's going to take a little bit of time. But I will tell you this, the vast majority of people in the organization don't want to be bothered with this kind of behavior. They just feel trapped because as long as the people at the top keep supporting it, they feel caught up in this. And so I think they, you know, a person like me will be welcomed by many, but not by all. What, what percentage of the sheriffs right now do you, like just a rough estimate, do you think are affiliated with a sheriff gang? Look, so there's 10,000 deputies, probably, I'm going to guess, looking at how many stations we have. And, and then I, now I hear they're in the jail, now I hear they're at the Aero Bureau. I would say a couple hundred, probably. So then the vast majority are not affiliated yeah, because the vast the majority, you know, those stations that, that those areas tend to proliferate or they tend are more of the inner city areas. So there's only so many people that work at Compton and not everybody at Compton can be part of this group, which I learned recently can only be male Mexican, not even male El Salvadorian or male Guatemalan or female. You can only be a male Mexican. I didn't know that. So you got Compton, Century, South LA, you know, a couple of the jail facilities. So it's not everything. There's 70 five plus units in the department. So it's not every, you know, you're not going to have a West Hollywood gang guy, you know, they're, they're just mentality is not that way. 
Uh, and so where you see the insular, the insular stuff is deputies that work Compton don't really pay that much respect to deputies who work Malibu. Why? Because Malibu is, it's not really crime fighting. It's looking at people on the beach and, you know, it's, we're doing the hard work here in the, in the, in the ghetto. You guys are just goofing off. You know, that's how. Yeah. Pulling, pulling over uh, Miles Davis in his expensive car. You got to worry about pooper scooper laws. We don't, we're not doing right. that here Compton. Uh, yeah. Got it. Got it. Okay. Um, I mean, so if we're talking about, it's going to take a little bit of time. What does that mean? Is that five years? Is that 10 years? Is it 20? You know, the department, it trits out about 300 people a year. You know, like when I came on in 81, they hired 1,100 of us. So 33 years later, you start seeing big blocks of people retiring. Right now, we're in a big hiring uh, push. So whoever gets hired, in the, you know, the next 1,200 to 1,500 people, they get hired in 2022. 30 years from now, you're going to start seeing them a trit out in big blocks. We had trade a lot of folks and then COVID kind of hit and, and, you know, made people retire and, and that kind of thing. So, so it won't take as long as you think. Plus, I think that once I come in and lay down the ground rules and say, look, I want to work with you guys. You just got to work with me. I'm not asking you not to be the police. I'm just asking you to be rational and to be constitutional. If you can't do that, there's other agencies you can work for. Or you can get out of this one. So, and I don't think very many people are going to want to take that path out because it's a great job. I mean, you can have fun at it. I've worked in the inner city. Uh, I worked undercover narcotics and saw people because I lived in Lumber Park for 20 years. Okay. So even working dope. And so people saw me uh, in an undercover capacity. And like, didn't I see this dude? You know, and they see me in Harold and Bell. It's like, that's that dude, you know? <laughs> so right. this is a question. Like when I see people who are in charge, I see presidents and politicians and mayors and governors. I'm like, I can't think of anything I would like to do less than to be in that kind of position. So I'm curious, like, why do you even, why do you want to be the sheriff of LA County? Like what motivates you? Us, you know, our community. I mean, the fact that, you know, when I've walked this long path of public service my whole life, I've sat before the tough audiences, you know, you guys are profiling us or this person was shot unarmed and I'm used to it. I kind of grew up in that environment. And, you know, it's, you know, kind of one of the secrets I'll tell you is in law enforcement, there's always your, your front man, right? There's your, your Negro front man who deals with the ghetto. There's your Latino front man that goes, you know, so I was that guy. And because I was biracial uh, and I get along with pretty much everybody, you know, so I attended a lot of those meetings and, and I have a huge amount of empathy for the public and I'm a collaborative kind of person. So I like that. I like the, the work. And I really feel like People that don't know a lot feel overconfident and like, oh, I could be the sheriff. It's like, I know what it takes and I know, you know, what that job is like because I was at the very pinnacle of it and watched it. So I know exactly what I'm getting myself involved in. And I'm not telling you, I'm just like, oh, I'm like YOLO. I'm going to go. No, I know it's going to be tough. <laughs> and uh, but I'm willing to to uh, put that sacrifice in because I actually take a pay cut to come to the to the uh, sheriff's job. And so it's just something that I find very fulfilling. And I think I can make a real big difference. I've seen it before. I've done it before. I, I definitely wish you all the best. Like I said, I can't even imagine what that would be like. Well, what, tell me, I, this is just a, a side note. What does the, the police do at the airport? What is like your primary thing, like the, the, the most common thing that you're doing? Most common thing we do is deal with people that are acting up inside the terminal. So we have, during COVID, we had quite a bit of that. We do a lot of unhoused people there. We do a lot of, with uh, a lot of mental health challenges at the airport. And then we also, you know, 
work with the airline partners, you know, the ticket agents and those kinds of folks. Not a lot of traffic stuff, but we've had instances. If you, if you look at uh, Google, the airport over the last couple of years, we had a guy high on meth drive through the FedEx gate onto the airfield. That's right. Yeah, we had to pursue him and all that. Now, I will tell you, pursuing somebody on the airfield is not exactly like pursuing them on the street. And had they started driving towards an airplane, we might have to do some like pretty serious intervention. What does that mean? Well, if somebody is driving towards an airplane, we're going to do some pretty serious intervention. We're probably going to ram that vehicle or or stop them from going. Kind of like a pit maneuver that you see in the street. But Uh can you imagine a a truck or a car running into a passenger plane with filled with aviation fuel. No, we can't have it. Yeah. It it just turns into a bomb basically out there and you got hundreds of lives at stake. So, you know, there's certain protocols out there that we have on the airfield. Uh, And then we had another guy jump from the, um, from a plane taxiing out to the runway. He jumped from the moving plane down onto the tarmac Uh, again, high on that. So we have those kinds of incidents going on at the airport. We're almost done. I have a couple of questions that I ask of all of my guests. So the first one is, how would you define Blackness? Being biracial and then being raised by people who were born before 1920. So my mother's great-grandmother was a slave. Blackness is an experience that we in America have experienced that's, quite frankly, not too unique from other countries, but it's unique to us in terms of how we were freed, the Reconstruction period, which wasn't really Reconstruction for us, it was really probably the most traumatizing time for slaves other than slavery. Uh, So our experience here as as African-Americans, I think, has been overlooked and really kind of downplayed to the fact that they, like, we should get over it. You know, I kind of get that feeling. And even sometimes I felt like, okay, I put myself up on my bootstraps and I really like what Martin Luther King said. And, you know, we have equal opportunities and you just got to really get out there and get it. But Some people don't have the same opportunities. And so, you know, to be black in America, I think, is to be conscious of all of our circumstances and really be, we always have to be seemingly much more empathetic than other groups. You know, that's been my experience. But we're also much more tolerant, I've noticed. You know, when our communities start getting, you know, gentrified by, uh, you know, immigrants from other countries, we kind of embrace that, you know, and we didn't really... You know, and it's not really reciprocated, quite frankly, sometimes. So that's for me, the black experience is a combination of our history, our culture, what you see now, the political acrimony is really rooted in the, the subconscious of this whole experience of race here in America. hundred percent agree. Then nothing happens in a vacuum in America, for sure. So my favorite question, who is your black hero or heroes? And why? My black hero is my mother who adopted me, whose great grandmother was a slave who came here from, you know, Texas from World War II. And, you know, she raised me in this environment. And and, uh, so, I mean, truly, you know, when you look at leadership, I mean, at the very core, it is your parents or you as the, you know, the older sibling or whatever it is. And you don't even have to be the oldest. You just have to be the one that leads that group. And so, for me, that that was my mom. And so, unfortunately, not my dad. But I mean, you know, I learned from, from his experiences, too. But my mother was, she taught me hard work. She taught me, you know, ethical behavior. She taught me how to treat women, you know, how to be really um, care, caring with my children, you know, that kind of thing. So I think for, for me, it's my mother. Okay, let's honor her. What's her name? Mary Ann Rambo. Mary Ann Rambo. 
Also, side question. Now, were you in Korea or were you here when you got? She adopted adopted me from Korea. I was in a phone book. I was not down the phone book. I was in a photo album. And she went, I'll take this one that looks malnutritioned. And uh, they flew me over because they'd never been to Korea. I went back to Korea in 2010 just on a fluke, but they'd never been to Korea. You know, my father was stationed in uh, in uh, Okinawa. but So there was a, an agency here and your picture was in a book. She pointed to you and then they went and brought you over. They flew me over. They paid the ticket they and flew me over. And I'm, I'm adopted with other kids, too, from Korea. That, that So I know some other Korean adoptees that are biracial that I kind of grew up with. And because uh, my mom, so I said, Mom, why, I mean, why did you adopt a black kid? She said in the 50s, there were no black kids to adopt. That was, I didn't know that, you know, because my my uh, my mother, they had been married 20 years before I even came into the picture. Wow. Yeah, they bought in Compton in 1950 and, uh, you know, and then brought me over. So were the bulk of the adoptees biracial? If you came from Korea, it was it was we were all war babies. So, yeah. So we all kind of look alike. So interesting. Okay, that's all the questions that I have. I know that you're busy in the middle of this campaign for sheriff. Again, like I said, I don't know how you do it, but I have a lot of admiration for people who put themselves out there and want to be a positive leader and make really difficult changes in a very high visibility position. The sheriff of Los Angeles County has got to be one of the most prominent law enforcement positions, I would think, in the entire country. So, Well, I mean, look, who's the sheriff of Orange County? Who's the sheriff of Kern County? Who's the sheriff of Santa Barbara County? We don't know, right? I mean, so sheriffs you know, can be highly, highly publicized or high profile where they can just do their jobs and do it quietly. And if you're doing the right thing, you're not always in the news. I, the only other sheriff I can think of is that wackadoo in uh, Milwaukee, Clark. Oh, yeah. The other, goatee. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He's, yeah. he's the only other one. And I'm yeah. like, thumbs down on him. Right. Well, there's 58 sheriffs in, in the state. Right. So each county is 58 counties and 58 sheriffs in the state of California. And, you know, one. Right. Yeah. All I know is Villanueva. I could not tell you any other sheriff. Point taken. So I'm grateful for your time today. I'm grateful that you had the energy and the enthusiasm and the desire to make things better. And something that you said was really important, that it's about the community. And that's what motivates you. So I wish you all the best in your campaign, telling everybody about you, to look into you, to give you strong consideration. And of course, you're welcome back in the Black seat at any time. Hey, if I'm sheriff, I, I want to come back and, you know, bring you to the office. We'll go tour the jails. We'll look at all that. OK, I've got some sheriff friends, so we got to we gotta bring them, too. <laughs> yep. Not a problem. Not a problem. Rambo for okay. sheriff. Check out the website, R-H-A-M-B-O-F-O-R sheriff. And then uh, there's a couple of YouTubes that K- KCAL CBS did as well. There's a uh, candidate forum and then there's a uh, candidate profile. So have the audience take a look at that and they'll see us on there. OK, we'll uh, definitely be a uh, share and spreading the word. Okay. I appreciate you. Thank you. With all of my melanin, I want to sincerely thank my guest, Chief Cecil Rambo. If you're listening to this before June 7th, 2022, make sure to vote. If it's after June 7th, be sure to vote in whatever election is coming up. Thank you for taking the time to listen with an open heart in mind. Special shout out to Ketza for the music. We've got lots of other great episodes planned, and I look forward to introducing you to some really interesting Black folks. 
If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email me at superblack at intheblackseat.com. We are also on Twitter or IG at In the Black Seat. God bless y'all and see you again soon.